reassuring names. I would say uh, two things about this. Number one is the challenges that this administration faces are greater than in the Obama era because polarization and inequality uh, have grown enormously. Uh, so I think the new departures, the creativity of the administration will have to be proportionately greater and so will implementation to achieve the results which uh, America needs to, to see. The second thing I, w I would say is that uh, there is one word which in the, wor in the eyes of uh, people looking at America, I think this, uh, these appointments uh, can be described as, and that is professional. Mm. So we're going to get stability. Yeah, that's very yes, and very reassuring. Okay. Well, thank you for your yeah, thoughts this indeed. morning. You heard that David Roche, President of Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, our regular Wednesday commentator, Stuart Hallcroft, Chairman of City Trust, and also regular Wednesday commentator, Barry Wood, our, in our international economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this morning in Australia. First of all, the SX200 is up about 0.1%. Same in Japan with the Nikkei 225. Uh, the Cosby is up about three quarters of a percent in South Korea. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about a quarter of a percent firmer later on this morning. Stay tuned for Back Chats with Hugh Chiverton and Janice Wong in just a moment. The weather forecast is going to be fine and dry. Maximum temperature about 23 degrees. Uh, outlook is for it to be fine and dry in the next couple of days and then the temperatures will fall progressively. Rather cool in the morning at night over the new territories towards the weekend. Temperature right now is 18 degrees and it's 74% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. In its annual report, a U.S. Congressional Commission has recommended making it easier for Hong Kong residents fleeing political persecution to settle in the United States. It suggested removing barriers for Hong Kongers to apply for U.S. visas and grant political asylum to those born after the handover who can get only a Hong Kong passport. It also said trade authorities should report within 90 days whether there was a risk of mainland China using Hong Kong to evade trade remedies. The report accused Beijing of using the coronavirus to silence opposition while the pandemic prevented protests from Hong Kong residents. It also said LegCo elections were postponed and dozens of pro-democracy candidates banned because authorities were facing a likely pro-democracy victory. In response, the SAR government said the elections were postponed because of health risks during the pandemic. It accused the United States of double standards and said enacting national security laws was in line with international practice. China has successfully put a probe onto the surface of the moon, which is due to send back to Earth about two kilos of rock. If successful, the mission will become the first round trip to the moon by a spacecraft since the 1970s. Monica Grady, a professor of planetary and space sciences in the UK, said this was a groundbreaking expedition. It's very significant. The first one that's going to bring back samples since the Apollo and lunar missions of the early to mid-1970s. Uh, it's going to a different part of the moon from where we've been before. We hope it's going to bring younger rocks back so that we can learn about a, a different part of the moon's geological history. 
One of President Trump's most loyal lieutenants, the U.S. Attorney General William Barr, says there's no evidence of widespread fraud that could change the outcome of the presidential election. President Trump has consistently refused to concede victory to Joe Biden. Mr. Barr is said to be meeting Mr. Trump at the White House. The Democrat Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said Mr. Barr's job could now be at risk. In response to Attorney General Bill Barr, I guess he's the next one to be fired. Since he now, too, says there's no fraud, Trump seems to fire anyone in that regard. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Trivett and your co-host today is Janice Wong. Janice, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today, zero carbon and baby delivery arrangements under COVID. In last week's policy address, Chief Executive Carrie Lam said the administration will strive to achieve carbon neutrality for Hong Kong before 2050, making good on the plan from the Council for Social Devel- uh, for Sustainable Development. And Xi Jinping declared in September that China will reach zero emissions by 2060. With the change in leadership in the US too, some scientists see hopeful signs that the Paris Agreement targets can be met globally. Is that realistic? What would local plans entail for government, business and for ordinary people? Is it achievable? Does it conflict with grand development plans like Lantau tomorrow? We want to hear your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. You can email backchat at rthk.hk or you can call us, the number 233-88266, And after 9.15, we're going to be discussing new arrangements in public hospitals where pregnant women are required to deliver without the company of their partners or husbands. We'll be talking to an expectant mother uh, on that issue. Looking forward to that. Just before we get to our first topic, a little bit of a couple of uh, uh, political uh, issues I'd like to uh, uh, address. Uh, first of all, Phil B. <clears throat> in an email, says, uh, I was listening to this morning's news and verbal diatribe of Chris Young, the press spokesman. He made outrageous statements about the termination of the iCable news staff. He's clearly adopted Trump tactics and values, making ridiculous accusations without offering any evidence whatsoever. If Chris is even close to the truth with his fear-mongering statements, then RTHK must be shaking in their boots. That comes from Phil B. And Martin says, uh, in regard to yesterday's discussion, uh, it's quite ridiculous that so many of your regular correspondents keep harping on about the salaries paid to pro-dem legislators. Actually, $100,000 a month is hardly an attractive remuneration for a well-educated and capable professional in his or her prime when compared with salaries in the private sector. They also continue to question what these legislators achieved in their time in office. Meanwhile, the 60% of the community who voted for them would question what benefit the community has reaped from the presence of so many mediocre pro-establishment legislators, some of whom have resorted to faking or embellishing their academic achievements. Their careers prior to being shoehorned into safe and functional seats were less than impressive. What have they done in the last decade to promote the welfare of the populace and improve our lot? The most striking are the Labour representatives. With three dedicated seats, Hong Kong should be a workers' paradise. So why do we still have blue-collar workers getting paid fewer public holidays and the MPF offsetting is still allowed? With their majority, what have they done to improve housing, education, health services? What about the third world conditions many workers have to toil in? That's from uh, Martin. Once again, our email address is backchat at rthk.hk. 
All right, our guests in the first half of the program this morning as we discuss decarbonisation or carbon neutrality is uh, Edwin Lau, the Chief Executive of the Green Earth, and Simon Ng, the uh, Director for Research and Policy at the Business Environment Council. Um, Mr Lau, maybe we can start with you. Good morning, morning. and thanks. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. So, I remember that before the policy address, you told us on this program that uh, carbon neutrality is one of the things you hope the government will focus on in its uh, policy blueprint this year. So, I guess your wish has come true to a certain extent, (laughs) hasn't it? Yeah, yes, because I think the uh, Council for Sustainable Development in uh, recently they announced and recommended to the government that we should go for the 2050. Uh, carbon neutrality target, and this I think give uh, the administration and the chief executive the confidence that she should really uh, also say the same and not other uh, targets uh, lower than this. So I think the uh, hard work of the sustainable uh, development councils that uh, their consultation and get the feedback from all the uh, experts is really helpful in. Uh, shipping that Hong Kong is a wealthy economy. Uh, we are not developing, so we should go for the similar target as other uh, Western countries. And lately, the Japan and South Korea has also committed to the same target. Right, but the, is the government's plan to achieve a carbon neutrality in three decades' time good enough? Uh, the earlier one that the Environment Bureau has uh, announced, which is the uh, uh, climate change uh, 2030 plus that one is not really uh, can be able to achieve the 2050 um, uh, carbon zero target and and what the environment bureau has said uh, that they will announce a new set of uh, strategies and action plan uh, early next year to uh, uh, to achieve the uh, target. So we are looking forward to the grand plan that our government uh, will deliver. And this should be really different from what the government had been uh, released so far. And we should be very aggressive, especially uh, regarding the power generation, because that uh, sector has contributed uh, 65% of the cities total uh, carbon emissions. Right. Do you think this target will be hard to achieve? It is uh, not difficult at all to achieve uh, based on the the limitations that Hong Kong uh, had and because our spaces were limited and and people don't want to put a lot of uh, renewable energy system, say, in our uh, in our countryside, in, in, in the wilderness. And then what we remain at is the, uh, the rooftop and also for large scale, say, uh, such as wind farm, we have to put it on the Hong Kong waters. And then that it's still there are some uh, uh, opportunities on the Hong Kong waters that go up, uh, away from those uh, major uh, shipping uh, uh, routes then we can still establish a quite large-scale wind farm. And still, even if we are uh, uh, getting all these opportunities, I don't think we are not enough to be able to uh, produce enough uh, renewable energy, those clean ones, to supply the needs 
uh, of Hong Kong, and we should really think beyond our own uh, boundary and go beyond our uh, uh, physical boundary and to uh, outside Hong Kong waters. And then this is uh, the way we, we should uh, consider and not just to be limited to ourselves. And uh, this is on the renewable energy side. And then uh, energy efficiency for building, this is this is a must-do. And this is a, a, a proven and effective uh, measure that uh, every uh, economy should, should really uh, strive at. And 90% of our carbon emissions uh, for the uh, power generation is <coughs> used by the uh, buildings in Hong Kong. And our building energy efficiency ordinance that we have now uh, only covers the uh, newly erected buildings, uh, the new ones, but not the existing building stock that according to the government we had around 42,000 of uh, uh, existing buildings. So unless they do major retrofitting works, Otherwise, they are not really need to uh, uh, follow the standard, the statutory standards. So this is a, a big uh, loophole here that uh, if those existing, existing buildings, if they uh, try all the ways to avoid doing major ritual fitting works, then they never need to uh, achieve a, the statutory standard. So to raise this level and be more energy efficient in operating those buildings. Uh, also with us is uh, Simon Ng, Director of Research and Policy at the Business Environment Council. Mr Ng, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank, Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. An interesting piece in, in the, in the uh, FT, I don't know if you've seen that, about the problem with zero carbon pledges, saying that ambitions to cut emissions are expressed in almost every company press release and annual report, uh, but they're not all very real, and it even cites HSBC, uh, who've told investors of its net zero uh, ambition but with very little information on how it's actually going to do that. Uh, you know, there are a lot of promises uh, floating around from, from governments and, and from businesses. Uh, how can we be sure that those are actually going to be acted on and they will come true? Well, uh, thank you for the question. I think, uh, first of all, it is important for the government to announce, you know, this uh, very important commitment. Of course, we are still waiting for the details uh, next year in the updated uh, climate action plan. So, uh, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, how aggressive the government is going to be in terms of decarbonization action and measures. But uh, when it comes to um, the business sector, I think it is encouraging. Uh, that they are now, you know, looking to set up the carbonization target and try to achieve it. Now, I, uh, I, I agree with you. It is important to be, you know, to have the transparency uh, so that we can, I mean, the, the general public and, of course, the shareholders and investors can scrutinize, you know, how business has been doing when it comes to decarbonization. So I think it's like a collective effort. So we need to have the business sector realizing that this is important to have the carbonization target to start with. And then we have a system uh, or way to make sure that uh, other people can, you know, uh, monitor the progress uh, uh, with all these commitments. So I think it's a, it's a work in progress. Uh, 
Um, so to say that uh, these companies are only paying lip service, I think, is unfair to them at this point. I think some of them are actually doing quite a, quite a bit to try to decarbonize, and because they are also committed to, for example, science-based target initiatives, and is a very robust and stringent requirement, uh, you know, under that initiatives that a uh, company has to comply with. So I think transparency is important. You know, people should be asking the right kind of questions. I mean, sustainability reporting is just one uh, of many channels to demonstrate their commitment, their progress, and to be, uh, you know, to disclose information. But I think if the government or maybe some of the regulators, if they can come up with, you know, more stringent requirements in terms of disclosure, I think it will also help the situation. I mean, the the, the the policy address talks about striving to achieve this. Uh, I mean, it only promises to strive to achieve, doesn't it? Promise that this this will happen. And, and a lot of the reports talk about their ambitions or their wish to do something. Do you think there's an argument for giving, you know, making this a little bit more formal, giving a giving somebody a bit more teeth in this, so that they, you know, they're they're obliged to meet these targets? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, in a sense, when you look at the uh, original statement, uh, I think you know it's good to have that statement. It's a clear vision, but you know, in terms of the wordings, I think the government can be a bit more specific. But as they already explained, they're going to have uh, a lot more details in the climate action plan uh, and the update next year. So I think it's fair to wait for the details uh, for next year. But at this point, I think we should also make sure that you know the government will work with uh, different stakeholders including the business sector including you know the uh, the third sector and the general public to uh, to start to come up with ideas now the council for sustainable development has already put forward uh, I think more than 50 recommendations to the government. So I think that's a good starting point. But how to implement those measures, I think that's uh, another important question. And I really, you know, uh, look forward to the climate action plan next year so that we know how the government is going to work with other parties to make sure that everyone, everything will be Im- implemented in the right way. And I also want to show, uh, uh, explain one more point. You know, I think it's a big improvement uh, with this statement because this is an absolute carbon reduction target rather than the uh, carbon intensity target that we had in the last version. So I think in the last version we're talking about by 2030, we have to reduce, you know, 60 to 70 percent carbon intensity. uh, What's the the difference? Can you explain the difference? Well, because um, carbon intensity uh, also take into consideration of economic development, of your GDP growth. So as you, the economy continues to grow, uh, basically, you know, the, the base uh, for that, you know, calculation will be different. Um, but if you are talking about absolute reduction of carbon emission, then you have to uh, take carbon emission, uh, emission off the equation. Otherwise, you wouldn't achieve an absolute target. So I think it's a much more ambitious target. And I think uh, this is what we are asking for. And I'm sure Edwin will agree with me. I think that that's, uh, that's a good starting point. But how to make sure that we achieve uh, you know, carbon reduction to uh, being ne- neutral? I think that's uh, uh, the next question. Mr. Ng, currently, I mean, what sort of um, assistance is the government government offering to businesses right now uh, to help them cut their carbon emissions? Well, I think in terms of uh, assistance, I would say the government actually can do a bit more. But, you know, their argument saying, you know, the corporate world, they should, you know, take responsibility and they should use their own resources to decarbonize. So I think it's like, you know, if government can provide more support, not just financial support, but also policy support, it would be very, very welcomed by the business sector because I think businesses in general, they appreciate clear policy directions 
with clear policies, they will be able to plan uh, their operation, their future investment, you know, whether it's for decarbonization or whether uh, it's in you know, clean technology. So uh, that's why I'm, you know, repeating a few times, you know, with this statement, I think it already gives uh, the business sector uh, a, a clear signal the government is uh, having a certain level of ambition to decarbonize and that's the goal by 2050 uh, similar to like Japan and South Korea and Europe and and that's a, a good enough signal for the business sector to take, take action now in doing in taking action if the government can provide further support that would be great especially I think if the government can provide some support to the SMEs to, de- to start decarbonization I think that would be great but uh, I think the signal is very very important here. But under the current economic situation, can the government really afford to invest in uh, carbon neutrality? Oh, of course. I mean, we talk about green recovery. We talk about government providing uh, financial assistance to companies who are you know, struggling right now. But actually, when you look at uh, Europe or even in the USA, they provide uh, you know, green recovery funding with stimulus or requirements that these money has to be used to create green jobs to make the uh, company more sustainable in the long, long term. And I think that dovetails very well with the whole idea of decarbonization because that's a long-term action. That's a long-term, you know, uh, commitment. And you need to have continuous support, policy support, but also financial support to make it happen. So as the government is investing to uh, economic recovery, I think an important part of that is how to use those resources, financial resources, to actually prompt the business sector to become more climate resilient, to think about long-term business sustainability, to employ young graduates who are willing to commit to uh, green jobs, and so on and so forth. Edward, now, could you just clarify something? So we, we talk about decarbonisation, we talk about reducing carbon intensity, and we talk about a carbon neutrality. What does carbon neutrality actually mean? Does that mean that the, you don't produce any carbon at all, or what? Uh, this means we, uh, certainly, we need to, first of all, reduce the carbon emission as, as much as possible, as much as we can. And then the remaining that we cannot really uh, uh, reduce, then we need to uh, find ways to absorb the carbons, such as now. One important and sustainable uh, method is the uh, expansion of our green lung, which is the uh, vegetation, the forest. That is a very good way and, and automatically uh, work uh, almost uh, uh, 24 hours a day to absorb our carbon dioxide once there is the sunlight. And, and we don't need to have a mechanical system that you need to apply energy to run the mechanism to absorb carbon. Of course, in some countries, they are using carbon uh, storage uh, capture system. And that you require to have energy input. But if it's a quick area uh, expansion of uh, forest, and this will uh, really absorb the carbon. Can we do that? Can we do that somewhere else? I mean, can sure, we can sure, we pay for, for trees to be planted somewhere no, else? That uh, is a, the uh, uh, off-site mm. uh, application. Of course, we can do that. And because of the limitation of the space in Hong Kong, we do as much as we can. Because in the new territory, uh, when we do hiking, we also uh, see there are some barren mountains that without uh, much vegetation. 
beyond that, we should uh, 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 use our resources to grow uh, the, the, the forest in, in other places. So we should not limit to ourselves because there are other places that are massive uh, land uh, that is not a, a limitation. So we can grow uh, trees, vegetation, to absorb part of our uh, carbon emissions so that our uh, emissions are absorbed or in, uh, in, in a good balance so that we bring the city to down to a zero after the pluses and minus and it becomes zero. That is the carbon neutrality. But remember, first of all, most important, we need to do our best to reduce the emission in the first place. So such as using renewable energy that would not emit uh, carbon at all. And uh, the, the, the fossil fuel that we are using today, such as coal, such as uh, the natural gas, they should be uh, uh, gradually phasing out. And all, also the Sustainable Development Council is that uh, using natural gas is only an interim solution. And while the uh, power companies in Hong Kong, they said, well, we are changing uh, our fuel mix uh, according to government to in, in increase the percentage of uh, uh, natural gas. That's good half halfway. And then as really this is good compared to using a lot of coal as a fuel because natural gas emission of CO2 is about uh, 50% uh, that of the coal, and then it also helps reduce air pollution, uh, such as trees and not. So, uh, okay, uh, Simon, um, it would be nice to you know plant more trees around the new territories and so on, and make our, our hillsides wooded. Um, but the government plans seem to be uh, the other direction, don't they? They seem to be uh, massive infrastructure, including, of course, above all, the Lantau Tomorrow project, which. Uh, you know, uh, is enormous, very ambitious, um, and involves in a huge amounts of concrete and uh, land reclamation and things like that. Um, it looks like we're going in the the opposite direction. Is it? You know, um, can we have those kind of development plans and still achieve carbon neutrality? Well, I think um, the the land. Uh, I mean, tomorrow, uh, land house tomorrow. I think that uh, as a massive plan, and obviously any large-scale development will have an environmental implication, whether it's air quality uh, uh, effect or, you know, affecting water quality and also, of course, affecting uh, carbon emission. So I think, you know, for, you know, for projects, usually uh, they have to go through uh, an EIA process, environmental impact assessment. But in this particular issue related to land development, I think because of the scale, the government really have to think carefully uh, and to, you know, to assess in terms of the pros and cons, the impact. Now, um, based on the government's uh, explanation, um, you know, I think they are saying, you know, we need to provide more housing. Uh, is it the only way to provide a substantive you know, uh, amount of housing uh, for people in Hong Kong? So that's a question mark here. Whether we can do it elsewhere, you know, maybe not in, in a big area, but in you know, smaller areas, and whether there would be uh, other uh, facilities to support those kind of development, I think that's another question. But if we have development in that kind of scale, people definitely, and I think they have the right to 
to ask the question, you know, uh, what uh, would be the impact on the environment? And as we are talking about zero emission, we're talking about carbon neutrality, definitely the government has to answer to, to uh, people's question. Now, even from the business uh, perspective, I think um, if, if you ask you know, some of the major developers, on the one hand, they also have to decarbonize, but on the other hand, if they are being involved in those uh, projects, then it will also have uh, an impact on their carbon uh, decarbonization journey and on their footprints. So I think even the, the business sector will uh, ask the same question to the government. You know, how can we make sure that with developments we're not going to, you know, uh, increase our, our carbon footprint and, you know, put a spanner to, to our decarbonization effort? Uh, and I know you're, you've only got a couple of minutes left, but um, a, a, another sort of million-dollar question is, is about nuclear power. Um, energy generation is, yeah, the source of most of our carbon uh, emissions, and a simple solution to reducing that significantly would be to bring in more nuclear power. Do you support that? I think we should not uh, say, but I think we should keep this open because, you know, um, nuclear is uh, carbon-free uh, energy and we are already using uh, nuclear energy uh, from across the border. Um, whether we should, you know, tap into that resources and even expand that portion in terms of the fuel mix, I think we should keep, you know, an open mind, just like, you know, if we want to, um, you know, import uh, renewable energy uh, resources from elsewhere, whether it's from mainland China or from Australia or from other parts of the world, I think we should also keep uh, that option open because at the end of the day, we really want to decarbonize. You know, there will be give, give and takes, uh, definitely, but which is the bigger, you know, uh, challenge we need to, you know, try to achieve or to address. And if that's the case, that we need to become carbon neutral, I think we have to consider all possible options. Okay, well, Simon Ng, Director of Research and Policy at the Business Environment Council, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. Uh, an email, a couple of emails, one from Paul, uh, who says, Bankchat is disagreeing with the zero carbon plan and all the Orwellian social dictates that come with it and a liable position to take, or is total government control of our lives and movements now in force? <clears throat> that question from Paul in Taipo. Paul, thanks very much in, indeed for that. Maybe we'll put that to uh, Edwin Lau. Uh, uh, in the uh, second part as we uh, continue the discussion after the news at nine we're also going to be talking about concern from an expectant mother over uh, regulations uh, now in place um, covid regulations essentially from the hospital authority uh, which means that uh, partners or husbands uh, can't be there when uh, somebody gives birth when a, w a woman gives birth in uh, the hospital authority uh, hospital uh, thoughts on that uh, coming up after the news at nine before it the weather fine and dry temperatures up to about 23 degrees 18 degrees now and the relative humidity is at 68%. At the White House, the Democrat Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said Mr Barr's job could now be at risk. In response to Attorney General Bill Barr, I guess he's the next one to be fired since he now too says there's no fraud. Trump seems to fire anyone in that regard. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Hugh Chiverton and me, Janice Wong. We now continue with our discussion on carbon neutrality and how it can be achieved. But before we get to that, um, I got uh, an email here. Uh, this one is from uh, S. Shaw. Um, S. Shaw, uh, in the email, it says, all the appliance manufacturers should provide better servicing 
for the appliances so they do not end up in landfills. Whenever anyone wants an appliance repaired, manufacturers make it so difficult and tedious and very, very expensive for the owners that they end up dumping their existing appliances. I wonder how many people have tried to get their electric irons repaired and given up due to higher costs and tedious processes. That email from Eshaw. And uh, Edwin Lau from the Green Earth is still here with us. Uh, Mr Lau? Good morning. <laughs> Good morning again. In the first half of the program, we talked about how we can achieve carbon neutrality. But um, what if we fail to achieve it by 2050? I mean, how will it impact our uh, economy? Um, the economy uh, will be uh, really affected by the extreme weather conditions. Because uh, this is, uh, I mean, some statement given by uh, many scientists uh, that the, uh, if the um, temperature rise beyond the 2 degrees Celsius from the pre-industrial uh, level, then uh, a lot of uh, uh, climate crisis will happen, and, and Hong Kong uh, cannot be immune from, from all these crises, such as sea level rise and, and all the extreme weather, such as uh, ty- uh, super typhoon and heavy rains and drought and all that things. And we really uh, dependent a lot of our data resources not from Hong Kong itself but from other places such as water and food supply and these uh, very crucial commodities if say if uh, the weather is getting very dry without uh, the, the, the uh, rains then the Dongjiang river also will get dry and then the uh, all the uh, cities, provinces uh, that rely on Dongjiang. And uh, we all suffer, and Hong Kong cannot be uh, having the, the first priority that we can get a job from Dongjiang and the other cities uh, near that where they, 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 are, they are the second tier. There's no way we, we can have that uh, priorities. And uh, when the weather changes, then of course it will affect the agriculture and then a food supply. Because Hong Kong is really, uh, doesn't have uh, much resources that we can uh, grow here or we can even just water. We cannot obtain enough precipitation uh, and into our reservoir. Even we had 17 uh, impounding reservoirs. So we have to really uh, uh, make this as the must reached goal for the 2050 and also, or even before uh, carbon neutrality targets. And, and, yeah. and earlier, in the earlier part of the program, you uh, uh, said renewable energy is really the key to achieving a carbon neutrality. Um, and uh, Simon Ng, uh, our earlier guest from the Business Environment Council, he said we should keep an open mind on uh, importing maybe a nuclear energy. Um, what's your view on that? Now, um, for nuclear energy, though it is uh, uh, carbon-free or very, very low carbon, uh, but nuclear energy has other, uh, other uh, kind of uh, negative uh, impacts, such as the nuclear waste and the potential of the health hazards from nuclear uh, incidents that when, when we look back uh, Chernobyl in 
1986, and then the、uh, Fukushima in Japan. That really reminds、uh, all the people around in the world that we shouldn't be、uh, put a high hope on nuclear energy. It could be, I mean, a small scale to uh, to to, to uh, giving a small supply, but if we、uh, Rely heavily on nuclear energy, then、uh, we'll, we'll run into problems. And why not going for the、uh, clean and hazardous-free,、uh, health-free,、uh, renewable, such as the、uh, wind, solar, tidal, and, and and lately there are many scientists、uh, around the world who are that,、uh, doing R and D in the. Uh, hydrogen as a clean fuel, and for hydrogen, the production of hydrogen should also be、uh, carbon-free. Now there are different types of、uh, hydrogen. When you can use、uh, fossil fuel to produce hydrogen, and the best way, the, the green hydrogen, what they call, is that when you can use the、uh, renewable energy uh, to uh, uh, use the energy to do、uh, electrolysis. To crack the water, water is abundant in 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 the world, and you can crack the water electrolysis by electrolysis to get the hydrogen, and that is a fuel for no matter is for、uh, the transport sector and also for power generation. So this should be the、uh, way that we invest in、uh, research and development to. Uh, find the、uh, uh, best and possible uh, uh, clean energy for Hong Kong and the rest of the world. You know, there are lots of aspects to this, aren't there? And I think the the Council for Sustainable Development had no less than fifty five different suggestions and areas that、mm-hmm. they were talking about.、Um, here's some from from our listeners following up on on different、uh, topics.、Uh, MT says most building related carbon emissions come from energy use. Thus, the first step in addressing emissions is reducing consumption through energy efficiency. Design. There should be the focus on existing buildings. That's、uh, from uh, MT. Uh, Jay says、uh, Hong Kong is supposed to have around seven million people, and the government are looking at eight or nine million.、Uh, can they give us figures on how many people over the past ten years have got respiratory problems with all this new construction, and why have these buildings not got solar or wind power on the roof, and why is it many people are not allowed to put their own solar system on the roofs? Legislation is stopping people putting initiatives, ideas on their roofs. Why can't people use electric scooters and bicycles instead of cars?、Uh, some thoughts there from、uh, Jay. And、uh, Bowen says on the topic of environmental protection, it's extremely disappointing that there's been no mention of coastal resilience in the 2020 policy address. Achieving carbon neutrality within the next three decades is all very well, but in the meantime, that's not going to help alleviate global warming, stop sea level rising, and prevent the occurrence of super typhoons in this part of the world. If 500 billion dollars is being planned to be spent on building an artificial island. Why has not a fraction of that been earmarked to be spent on protecting our existing structures and buildings along the coast, many of which have been subject to storm surges and flooding in recent years? A special report commissioned by the government on the low-lying areas will be released towards the end of this year. But at least in the case of storm surges at one locality, the report is not going to make concrete proposals on how to overcome technical problems the government has raised in response to suggested plans of local residents. There already appears to be signs of feet dragging and excuses made by the government. All 
the time when it appears to have no qualms about spending hundreds of billions which will benefit the developers and construction companies. That comes uh, from uh, Bowen. Um, uh, any thoughts on, on, on priorities, uh, Edwin? Now, we also had that email talking about um, uh, you know, consumer items, uh, appliances and so on, and scrapping those rather than getting them <laughs> yeah. fixed, which is I, a common situation, isn't it? Yes, I, I, I quite agree with the uh, comments made by the the uh, the audience that uh, well uh, we we should really have a lot on our plate to uh, to work on, but that we should also set priorities that uh, uh, which are the few that we need to uh, really uh, put more attention and resources to to drivers and certainly all those such as uh, the energy efficiency of buildings of appliances all important even now even all those buildings. Uh, newly built one uh, of very high uh, energy efficient center. If the tenants uh, working or living there do not use uh, uh, energy efficient appliances or they do not have a uh, uh, good environmental awareness in terms of uh, energy conservation, they leave, they leave all the appliances on all the lights on, uh, fully past the aircon, then it will still wasting the energy, even those are uh, energy efficient appliances. So this is besides the hardware that we have to really uh, look at and also to uh, uh, massive uh, propaganda education for the, all the general publics in how to conserve energy for uh, better climate is also an important uh, tool for the government to, uh, to, to, to look at. And now we, the government should really uh, consider having carrots and stick at the same time rather than always uh, use the uh, voluntary scheme that they come in the past. They like to uh, roll out voluntary schemes to encourage uh, the public sector or even the, the publics to do uh, better in, in terms of the environment. I think that is not enough at all if we are going to uh, go for the 2050 uh, carbon neutrality target. We should have set uh, higher and um, uh, mandatory, mandatory standards and requirements. And this is law. All sectors have to uh, follow the law. If you are not uh, reaching the standard and follow the law, then there will be penalty. And by doing so, then all will really... Uh, I mean, go for it. Okay, just one thing to, to finish off. Well, an, an email from Mushroom, uh, who says, we're not hearing about anything for indoor farms or outdoor farms. Food cultivation is out of the question. We're destroying, go down, so food cannot be grown there. Uh, we're not hearing anything about sewage farms to produce energy or salination plants to produce clear walk, water, clean water. Nobody seems to be thinking about ground level. So, uh, from Mushroom, I did in the introduction, uh, Mr. Lau, talk about the, some sort of uh, hopeful signs and uh, people saying that, um, some group of scientists saying that uh, the uh, targets that were set under the Paris Agreement, um, they're hopeful that they can be achieved now with, uh, with that commitment by China in particular, uh, with the change in administration in the United States and with the United States becoming uh, more green-friendly under, under Joe Biden. Um, there may be good news. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, because China is the world's largest uh, carbon uh, emitters. Now they have already pledged uh, to... Uh, uh, to, to reach carbon neutrality by 2060 or before, then I think this gives the 
pledge to do this and all the other developed economies, those wealthy economies, they should really uh, not walk but run to achieve the goal that uh, they have committed and even earlier than 2050 to save all of us from the climate uh, catastrophe. Okay, well, uh, Edwin Lam, many thanks for joining us. He's Executive Director of the, uh, the uh, Green Earth. We were speaking earlier also to Simon Ng from the Business Environment Council. Thank you very much indeed, and to all those who, uh, who emailed as well. 16 minutes past nine. Uh, uh, secondly today, we wanted to turn to uh, what's happening in our hospitals, uh, and in particular the uh, regulation which has been reintroduced by, by the hospital authority, uh, whereby uh, partners or husbands are, are not allowed to be present uh, at uh, the birth of their children. Uh, Lindsay Ford joins us now. She's a, an expectant mother who's been uh, tweeting about this uh, situation and uh, some of the uh, problems that, that are arising. Uh, Ms Ford, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for talking to me today. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Tell, tell us your situation then. What are your concerns? Well, so uh, personally, I am six weeks out of having my first ever baby, which, as you can imagine, is a pretty stressful situation as it is. Um, and I was first informed that, uh, that the ban on partners and delivery rooms had been reinstated via a WhatsApp rumour on Sunday evening. Um, the uh, hospital authority in the two previous times it's imposed this ban this year have never made public the fact that, um, uh, that partners are banned from delivery rooms. This is something that women have only been informed of uh, when they arrive at the hospital in order to deliver. Um, I've actually found it very difficult to find out exactly when these bans have been imposed as well. The hospital authority has been very secretive about the times it was introduced. Um, they, even even in uh, their communications, they've said that the latest ban stopped in September or October or November, but people have turned up at the hospital to find out that, yes, it is still in place and their partner can't be with them. Um, so, as you can imagine, it's a, it's a pretty traumatic thing for, for a woman to have to experience just uh, as she turns up at the hospital. Right. I actually contacted uh, Alex Lam about uh, this arrangement after hearing about your, your situation. He is the uh, chairman of uh, Hong Kong Patients Voices, and um, he seems to think there is no problem with not allowing the husband or partner into the delivery room. He says it's really for the safety of everyone involved in the delivery. And um, he, he went on to say that the arrangement uh, compared to people who are unable to visit their elderly pa parents in the hospital is um, reasonable to, to avoid infection either way. Uh, and uh, he said uh, comparing that to a dying patient, the wish of being visited is important and should be respected. But for pregnant women, he said the visits are good for relieving the stress, but they can always see um, each other, meaning the partner or husband, at, uh, at a later time. Do you think he has a point there? Um, I mean, obviously, the health of the medical staff a massive priority. Uh, but the, the hospital authority's uh, decision is actually going against recommendations made by the World Health Organization and the UN and the British Medical Journal, um, all of whom have said that it is vital to respect women's rights uh, in giving birth and having a partner of choice there. Um, there have been significant risks associated with a, a woman not having her partner with her during childbirth. Uh, it leads to longer and more causes. Uh, there's an increased risk of birth trauma, there's an increased risk of postnatal depression, and there's a significant, ultimately, breakdown of trust between women and medical staff. 
Uh, this is this is not an, an insignificant event in anyone's life, um, and the fact that Hong Kong appears to be one of the only countries in the world that imposes that imposes this rule is um, is really quite shocking. So, what are your plans now? I mean, I mean, have you contacted the hospital? What are you going to do next? I, I have been I've been speaking to the hospital at length. Um, uh, unfortunately, I believe I spoke to uh, someone at the hospital authority head office yesterday, who even they weren't. A, aware that this rule was in place. Um, I, I believe it's quite straightforward what the, what the solution would be. Um, uh, currently, any uh, woman who's admitted to a hospital to give birth uh, is administered a COVID test immediately. I see no reason why her partner shouldn't be given one at the same time. And if that test is negative, then he should be allowed into the delivery room. I, I mean, after all, I live in the same household as my husband. The baby is going back straight home with him afterwards. Uh, our, our level of risk exposure, our infection level is likely to be identical. So there's no reason why he shouldn't be in the room with me. So do you think um, the same uh, arrangement should be uh, uh, planned out or arranged for other patients? Um, like I mentioned earlier, maybe like a dying patient. Do you think uh, their relatives should be able to visit him or her, you know, I if mean, they get I, a test? I'm afraid I don't really feel qualified to, to comment on that because it's not something that I've been researching into the risks of. Um, I think that... Where possible, the hospital authorities should be showing some compassion. I mean, uh, the Hong Kong maternity hospitals have a very well-deserved reputation for delivering some of the best medical care in the world. But unfortunately, they also have uh, something of a reputation of being rather uh, lacking in compassion uh, towards women in in pregnancy and birth. And uh, it's often referred to as a production line. And I'm afraid this is just very symptomatic of that lack of compassion that we've heard of. All right. So have you heard from the hospital yet? I mean, if you, I mean, if they, if you don't get the response that you're hoping for, will you consider moving or, or, uh, to a private hospital instead? Well, I mean, a, a private hospital starts at around 70,000 Hong Kong dollars. And personally for me and the majority of other women in Hong Kong, that's just not an option. Um, it should not be the case that... Uh, we're not able to rely on our public hospitals for basic human rights and treatment. Um, and uh, furthermore, if, if, if um, uh, currently the private hospitals still allow partners into the delivery rooms, which if the risk is as high as the hospital authority would have us believe, then surely the private hospitals would have outlawed partners in delivery rooms as well. Uh, we, could, we did approach the hospital authority uh, on this. Um, they said that uh, they will adjust the services and operation arrangements according to the latest situation of COVID-19 to minimise the infection risks in hospitals and focus resources to combat the surge of demand during the epidemic. Uh, the said arrangement uh, was re- recently resumed in late September. However, due to the surge in COVID-19 cases confirmed recently, the hospital authority suspended the arrangement again today, uh, that's uh, yesterday, Today for the safety of inpatients and healthcare staff. The hospital authority will closely monitor the epidemic situation and resume the arrangement if the situation uh, allows. So basically they're just kind of switching it on and off according to to the uh, COVID situation. Um, do they have any choice? Isn't that what they have to do, really? Um, the problem is that they've given no, no threshold for how many COVID cases there need to be or how long cases need to be uh, at a low rate for, or um, even just any kind of advance notice given. Um, I, they, they said, uh, I was previously told that their uh, previous um, 
ban on partners had extended into November, and then I was told September. I've heard yesterday from a mother who gave birth in October and didn't find out until she was right about to give birth that her husband actually wouldn't be allowed in, even though a week earlier she'd been told that, uh, that it would be. Um, I think that that doesn't seem really, to that doesn't seem to gel with what the, they said. They said the arrangement whereby uh, people can go was resumed in late September. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm afraid uh, this this lack of transparency is is really what the issue is here. It's it's frankly a lottery uh, when when women turn up on the day whether or not they're going to be forced to give birth alone, and if their partners are going to be forced to miss the birth of their child. Um, we really need some clearer communication from the hospital authority about why they're imposing this, exactly how much a greater risk it is to have the partner in the delivery room, uh, and and what women can expect from this experience. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you know the situation in other places? What they do? Uh, in other in, when I've spoken to women in countries in the US, in the UK, in Ireland, in Europe, um, in South Korea. There is nowhere that I have found... Oh, no, sorry. Uh, Poland. Poland uh, bans partners in the delivery room. And I believe we've all seen how they treat their, their uh, women's rights in that country. Um, but other, other than that, there is no country that bans uh, partners in the delivery room, even at the height of the, um, the virus. Now, there were some cases, uh, some countries where they banned partners at the very beginning of the year, when we knew very little about the virus, and there were no testing resources. However, we are uh, 12 months into this by now, and it's just unacceptable to expect women to be forced to make this sacrifice when we have come on in so far in our understanding of how the virus is transmitted and our ability to test for it. You did say that uh, uh, the uh, hospitals have, an, uh, have a, a reputation for being unsympathetic towards women's wants and needs during pregnancy and birth. Mm. Uh, yes, this is um, the, the first thing I was told when, when I found out I was pregnant is um, you will receive great medical care, but you will be treated just like you know, someone else on a production line. Um, and it is, it's very unfortunate to see... Uh, to see this seeming to play out. Um, when I actually first went to uh, register with the public hospital when I found out I was pregnant, um, they made a, a, a great deal of, you know, really stressed the point that they were doing as much as they could to uh, combat postnatal depression and to make sure that mothers were feeling supported at all times. But uh, compared to what we've seen here from the hospital authority and their lack of communication, I really fear that they're just playing lip, uh, paying lip service to this idea. And how does your husband feel about it? I mean, about all this arrangement? I mean, obviously, he's devastated. Um, it's, it's something that we have planned for years, um, about him being present at the birth of his first child. Uh, he would like to be there to support me because he understands how, how important this is. Um, and it just seems very illogical to him that he can continue to go to restaurants, play sports, get a massage, but he can't be uh, present at the birth of his own child. A couple of comments, contrasting comments. 
Victoria on uh, Facebook says, I'm a woman who's 37 weeks pregnant, scrambling to adjust my birth plan as a result of the ban on partners. I'm appalled by the lack of transparency and information available on this. Couples should in no way learn only upon admission about what they can expect, on information and some guidelines published on how decisions are made. That's from uh, Victoria. And then uh, S says, uh, while I understand the concerns of the maternity patients, we need to have an overall view. There would be a lot of women going into delivery rooms, and if more people allowed, it would get risky for the staff as well as the people visiting. The same arrangement was in the UK. Uh, that's uh, from S. I think you're saying the same arrangement is not that in the UK. No, no. So uh, what, what this arrangement is strictly referring to is um, not, the, not the public antenatal ward, or the public, uh, or the postnatal ward, where there are many women uh, in the same ward. This is just talking about the private delivery room, where it's just the woman, uh, her doctor, midwife, and traditionally the partner. Um, so the, the, there is no one else who's being exposed there. Um, and even yes, it's true that many countries have placed more restrictions on who is available, uh, uh, who can attend a birth, and how long they can be there for. But the one common uh, element that they all have is that the partner is there for the delivery. Okay, well, very thanks for, for joining us and, uh, and best of luck with uh, whatever happens. Uh, Lindsay Ford there uh, joining us. Uh, thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you very much indeed for, for all your thoughts as well in uh, emails and on, on Facebook. A few more uh, on our first topic today. Jay Angry says, poor people in Hong Kong want cheap electric and cheap water, but of course the electricity company doesn't want to lose money with lots of other power manufacturing, different power on the system. And uh, Richard II says, for over 30 years, I've been suggesting that the Hong Kong government amend the building regulations to require insulation on all external walls to reduce, therm to reduce thermal retention. Uh, governments are simply disinterested, like those in most developed countries, unless market-driven solutions initiate these actions. Of course, the market won't. It will always go for the cheapest option, particularly if those building the property are also selling the energy to cool them. Government need to set the incentives to get the market to respond. Hong Kong has an appalling record on both habitat protection, environmental public education and energy efficiency. This needs to be done within the next decade. 2060 will be way too late. This is what few people seem to realise. Uh, and on Facebook, uh, John says in 2020, EPD reported about 40,600 kilotons of CO2 for the year 2018. After that project, such as Lantau tomorrow and the drive for additional housing, the offset will be significantly larger than today's figures to achieve net zero. That is from John. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, that's it from uh, us for today. Uh, here's the weather before we go. It's going to be fine and dry with a maximum temperature of about 23 degrees during the day. The outlook fine and dry in the next couple of days. The temperatures will fall progressively and it's going to be rather cool in the morning and at night over the new territories towards the weekend. 19 Celsius at the moment and a relative humidity of 67%. To fight the virus together, we must protect ourselves and others and reduce social contact. Stay at home as far as possible. Avoid social gatherings and don't go to crowded places. Work from home if feasible. Don't shake hands with others. We should also avoid meal gatherings. Let's adopt these measures to prevent the spread of novel coronavirus in the community. For more information on fighting the virus, visit chp.gov.hk. 31, the news now with Samantha Butler. 
In its annual report, a U.S. Congressional Commission has recommended making it easier for Hong Kong residents fleeing political persecution to settle in the United States. In response, the government here said the report was another example of blatant interference. Baptist University's Student Union says its acting head, Keith Fong, was arrested at his home this morning by some 20 police officers. It says he's suspected of possessing offensive weapons, perverting the course of justice and resisting arrest. And a sacked journalist from iCable says a new management team tried to prevent coverage of sensitive topics. Wang Liping, a senior editor on the China desk, was fired yesterday, triggering the resignation of the full China team. There were a further 40 layoffs in the newsroom with another 16 journalists resigning in protest. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. 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 How are you? Not too bad at all. Good morning. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the top Gary type violence. So it's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. A very good morning to you. Welcome to today's Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan, all the way through until one o'clock. Well, what's happening today? In a major but one-off cabinet reshuffle, Steve Vines will be with us today at 10.10 with his usual Blu-ray commentary. After 11.30, Philippe Dovar from RTL France is going to bring you his weekly update of all things French, including more of those impeccably chosen musical masterpieces. And at 12.10, we'll visit Chris Watts at his Motion Dynamics studio in Central for a look at your kyphosis. <laughs> Join us on Facebook Live throughout... Little tamey 